Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with a very special guest, uh, our friend Brian Loritz, uh, and we, we want to talk, Brian, about your, your book that's just come out recently entitled Insider Outsider, My Journey as a Stranger in White Evangelicalism and My Hope for Us All. So, well, well, first of all, welcome. Thank you for being with us, and we're delighted to have you on with us. Well, thank you guys for the invitation, and uh, Scott, it's uh, it's good to be with you outside of a boardroom. Here, here, and, I, uh, I, I, I agree with have that. Have great respect. Have great respect for you guys. So, yeah. thanks for the invite. Thank you. That reference, Brian serves also serves on the board of Biola University, uh, and we've had several conversations in the last few months uh, within the boardroom. Glad to, glad to get the chance to do this outside of that. Um, so, Brian, tell it. Just tell our listeners a little bit about your own journey to faith yourself. Uh, you grew up with a fairly influential father on the staff of of Crew, formerly Campus Crusade. Uh, so, just tell us about your own spiritual journey. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. You know, I always um, I always thought that my testimony was rather boring, and uh, you know, there was no. Um, kind of drama to it, you know, it wasn't one of these situations where I was strung out in some addiction or whatever. And all of a sudden there was, uh, this kind of Acts 9 Damascus Road experience. Um, but I'm deeply appreciative. You know, I, uh, I grew up in a strong Christian home, uh, where my parents, uh, for years, uh, was on staff with crew. In fact, the same organization that, uh, Sean's parents serve on. And, um, I just was really privileged uh, to have parents who uh, loved Jesus deeply and authentically and just lived out their faith. Uh, they used to call us um, my friends. Uh, I'd bring them home from school for dinner. They, they'd call us the Huxtables. <laughs> Although nowadays, nowadays, I don't know if that's so great of a reference, yeah, but back then right. it was. <laughs> it might not be a compliment <laughs> today. I uh, know, but the point I'm trying to make is they just didn't have a category for both parents uh, around the dinner table and uh, my dad opened up the Bible and, and doing mm. devos with us. And, you know, I grew up going on mission trips. And so that, that was kind of the home I grew up in. And uh, the older I get, the more deeply appreciative mm. uh, I am. I said the prayer at the age of four to answer your question. Uh, but that was because I went to vacation Bible school and I'm sure this would be illegal now, <laughs> but back then they showed a room full of four-year-olds, a film on hell. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> I freaked out, came home and said, don't want to go there. Uh, what must I do to be saved and <laughs> prayed the prayer. And, uh, but as far as owning my faith for myself, that didn't come until age 17. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about my story. Okay. Now you're, you know, you're a graduate of Talbot. Uh, you've been, mm -hmm. you've been pastoring in several, you know, several different cities. You started multi-ethnic churches in Memphis and now are pastoring in the Silicon Valley of the Bay Area of California, Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. Um, and you, you've got a special heart for uh, pastoring and nurturing multi-ethnic uh, congregations. Tell us yes. a little bit about where where that came from and why you're so passionate about that. Yeah, Scott, um, I think, um, you know, R Rick Warren says it this way. He, he 
he preached a sermon once in which he pretty much said, don't waste your pain. And his argument was um, a lot of the time your passion merges out of your pain. And I, um, I had some pretty heartbreaking experiences um, in Bible college uh, that just happened to be of the ethnic variety. And it just kind of wounded me deeply and set me on an emotional tailspin. And I think what made it worse was that it just ha- so happened to come out of a Christian environment. And um, but over time, uh, that pain out of that just kind of emerged this sense of, hey, we're still pretty broken as it relates to race relations. And I really see it in the church. And um, as I began doing itinerant ministry and standing up before homogenous crowds, I just began to ask myself the question, when are we going to come together? And I wanted to be on the solution side of things. So I just mm. started praying a prayer. Uh, God, I've got this. There's a hole in the wall, um, you know, to borrow a phrase from Nehemiah. And I want to be a part of fixing it. And I don't know what you're going to do with it. But um, I'm available. And a couple of years later, an opportunity came to go to the toughest city in the country um, to do multi-ethnic ministry among blacks and whites in an urban setting. It was Memphis, Tennessee, and, and we jumped on it and uh, made a ton of mistakes. But God was was faithful. And um, out of that, uh, a church emerged. Uh, and then an opportunity came for me to help tons of leaders uh, through this ministry I started called Kainos, uh, which we labor to see the multi-ethnic church become the new normal. So that's a bit of how I got there. This passion that you describe is just all over your book, Insider Outsider. It's clear that you've experienced this, but you have a heart for the church to move beyond some of the racial just injustice and misunderstanding and really embrace the broader biblical image of what the church should be like. Can you tell me what, what's the heart of Insider Outsider and also how you came up with that title? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think um, um, writing on race is tough, right? Um, because it's it's America's historic sin that hasn't quite healed. And um, so whenever you write on it, it's just it's just extremely difficult. So I wanted to write something that addresses the issue, but I didn't want to do it in a didactic form. Uh, I felt like it would be most palatable to put it in narrative form. So it's almost like I'm putting my arm around you and just say, hey, I just want you to come with me on this journey and see what I've seen and feel what I've felt uh, as I sit in a classroom uh, in Bible college and learn about this thing called classic dispensationalism or come with me, um, you know, as I serve uh, at a white Presbyterian church in North Carolina. Um, and after my first sermon, uh, one of the deacons says we need to let this inward preach more often. Um, wow. So so I, I think it's 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 more digestible. Um because it's my story. And we may debate facts, but I don't think we can really debate experiences. Mm. But hopefully it, it's done in such a way that challenges without deflating people. Mm. That's a tough balance to meet, isn't it? Yeah, I, it is. Uh, one of the things that jumped out to me, I studied communications as an undergrad. So you made a point that I kind of paused and have reflected on. I hope you can explain to us. You said, Sometimes the tension arises because of a a difference in communication between facts and feelings. And you make the point that oftentimes during racial strife, the black community rushes to feelings 
and the white community rushes to facts. What do you mean by this, and how does this break down communication? Yeah, so it's the communication pyramid. Actually, I, I know Muehlhoff, Tim Muehlhoff, who happens to be a professor at Biola and a good friend of mine. I know he didn't come up with it, um, but he's one who introduced it to me. And really, the communication pyramid says there's five levels of communication in descending order. The most su- superficial level is cliche. Good morning, good morning, how are you? You really haven't said anything. Levels two and three, sports center talk. It's where most guys hang out, facts and opinions. Levels four and five are indicator lights of your deepest relationships. Um, level four is emotive, sharing how I feel, and level level five is transparency, sharing who you are. So I think I think this this grid, Sean, is helpful um, not just in race relations but in marriages. I mean, Corey and I have just we've really pressed into this. And it's been a great tool for us, uh, for me to move past facts and get into feelings. But I think what happens, and you, you pick any racial incident where there, let's just say uh, it's an incident involving perceived um, police brutality, where a cop who happens to be white shoots a minority. What What happens, what tends to happen is... Minority communities rush into level four where we're we're emoting and we're lamenting, right? And then what happens is our white brothers and sisters, and I've experienced this, they're saying, well, hold on, let's not rush to judgment. We don't know what happened yet. And they're hanging out what I call lawyer land level two. <laughs> now, I don't know how it works in you all's marriage, but in my marriage, it just doesn't play well when my <laughs> wife comes to me with level four and I stay stuck at level two, right? And and I'm not saying, Sean, there's not a place for facts. There mm-hmm. is. Um, I'm saying if I'm going to have oneness with my bride, I need to first stop and feel until I resurface later on to facts. And Sung-Chan Ra wrote a, wrote a profound book called Prophetic Lament. And in that book, he says, um, he analyzes all of the, um, all the worship songs that we sing. And he says over 95% of worship songs that we sing are triumphalistic. He's overcome, he's conquered, he's risen. Now, all these are great things, but he says less than 5% of the songs that we sing in church are lament songs. And his point is we are hardwiring a generation of Christians who don't know how to lament, who don't know how to sit in the ashes with others. And so that I think is a major, major breakdown in race relations. Hey, uh, Brian, let me go to some of the details of the book. Um, you, you describe, you, you, you make a distinction between white evangelicalism as a movement and a white evangelical as an individual. Uh, can you help us understand how you're understanding those two things? And then you, you also, you also make, make the argument that, that as a movement, White evangelicalism needs its last rites to be performed. So spell out what you mean by that. Yeah, one one of the points I make, and I make it pretty early on, is um, evangelicalism and white evangelicalism are like 400-year-old conjoined twins who've never been separated in their lives. Um, And the history of evangelicalism in America um, begins with the Puritans, right? Although there's some debate over whether or not 
they were evangelical the way that we understand it. Um, and so because the Puritans happened to be white, um, those two things were connected. And because the history of America began on a note of whites being empowered and seen as superior, that brand of Christianity um, has always had white fingerprints on it. So when we talk about evangelicalism, if we try to peel back the layer, um, what I'm getting to, and it's on page 25, there's, there's really a couple core things. It's a movement of gospel centrality that's really focused on the primacy of Scripture and justification by faith. And it's also a modern movement within Protestant, Protestantism that's marked by Bevington's quadrilateral of biblicism, crucentricism, conversionism, and activism. So we can talk forever about that. So I think I think that's one thing. But when we get to white evangelicalism, we're really talking about a cultural agenda that's defined by whiteness. And here's where we have the problem. The problem is, um, and Corey Edwards, I think has been wide, wildly helpful for me. She's a Jesus loving sociologist at Ohio state university. Who's kind of our Yoda. When we talk about issues of, um, of diversity within the church, she says white people do not cognitively think of themselves as being white. And when I read that, Something in me just says that's that's exactly it. And the analogy she uses is almost like having two arms, right? Like the three of us talking, we have two arms, but we're not we're not cognizant of that. We're not aware of that. It's just kind of how we function. But she says minorities are kind of like one armed people in a two armed society. And if you've got one arm, you're constantly in tune with that reality. And that's what it is really with our white brothers and sisters. So, you know, I, I teach preaching at a, at a seminary and it's a class called preaching reconciliation. And one of the first exercises I have my students do, uh, we'll be in class and I'll say, define for me what black preaching is and hands go up and define for me what black theology is and hands go up. I then said, well, what's white preaching? Uh -huh. And what's white theology? And they have the hardest time with that. And I don't let them off the hook. I break them up into small groups, and they've got 45 minutes to wrestle with it. And it's an infuriating exercise because it's hard to label what one has normalized and mainstreamed. And I, I just argue that I think any good hermeneutics teacher will tell you the notion of being purely objective when you come to a pericope of Scripture is is an incredible false presupposition. None, we all we all bring our worldview to the text. What you try to do is, as best you can, is to divest yourself of those things. Well, part of that worldview is ethnically informed, and so as a black man, there's just things that I naturally pick up. I see the racism that Daniel experiences in Daniel chapter six, this minority working in a Gentile society and his co-workers are trying to oust him. And I'm like, Daniel, you need to go to the HR department and file a complaint about that. <laughs> or, the fact that or the fact that Jesus goes to Africa as an immigrant, as a minority. I see that. Right. So I cannot divest myself 
of my African-American worldview when I engage the text. And I argue in the book, I'm not asking for white people to do that either. I'm just saying we need to be aware of our unique biases. We need to see them if we're going to really um, uh, have have unity with one another. So so is, is this, is this, it sounds like this is sort of at the basis of how you understand the, the notion of privilege and uh, particularly white privilege. Uh, I had a faculty colleague tell me that he, he understands privilege as not not having to be aware of your ethnicity. Hmm. Uh, is that sort of the heart of it, or is there more to it than that? Uh, yes, I, I do think that's the heart of it. But And I make mention of it in the book, and I think it's it's incredibly unpopular for me as a minority to say it, but I really do, the more I think about it, and I've been thinking about it for a long time, the more I really believe it. I, I think I, I don't like the phrase white privilege uh, because attached to that is is that privilege is inherently wrong. Well, I try to run everything through a gospel lens. I'm going, OK, who is the most privileged person to have ever lived? It was Jesus. It doesn't get more privileged than God in the flesh. Mm. Um, and so if privilege is inherently wrong or sinful or evil, then we've got a major problem with Jesus. <laughs> I think what Jesus shows us in his life is privilege is not the issue. It's the stewardship of privilege that is the issue. So that's why Jesus is constantly talking about um, if you wish, you know, whoever's first will be last and how he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and talk about stewarding privilege. Well, that's the whole kenosis passage, right? In Philippians mm -hmm. chapter two, he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. I mean, here he is God in the flesh, but doesn't regard that um, in a way in which he holds on to his rights. So I, I want to do away with this whole notion that white privilege is wrong. I think the poor stewardship of the privilege is wrong. Okay. I, that, I think that's a helpful distinction because I think that, you know, there, there are a lot of whites who, when they hear that term, immediately they have one of two reactions. They either are defensive or they feel guilt. Right. Uh, and right. both of those assume that there's something wrong with the notion of privilege. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So that I think that's a really helpful distinction. That's how, it's how you steward that, and you know how you how you leverage that uh, right. is really what matters. Absolutely. I, I'm interested in asking a question, kind of about practice. You said that you could count on three fingers the number of white evangelicals who have contextualized their preaching to fit the norms of minorities in their churches and spaces. And I'm curious what this would look like because I worked for a year in the inner city and it was primarily Hispanic, but a range of minorities were there. And I preached one time to the students when I was done, this guy came up to me, he goes, man, you're using words like awesome and cool. He goes, we don't really use those words anymore. And this is like two decades ago. He said, we use words like fat with a PH and the bomb. Right. And I looked at him, right. I said, you know what? I, I can do better at that, but do you want me to be me or pretend to be somebody else? And he kind of looked at me, he's like, you know what, actually be you. So as I read this, I thought, what would it look like if I was invited to preach in this context or a white evangelical to appropriately and thoughtfully contextualize their preaching to respect minorities without being somebody that they're not? 
Yeah, and and that is more art than science, Sean, because I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, You don't want to be inauthentic. Um, You don't want to feel like um, you're being someone else in that moment. But I also think, you know, when we talk about contextualization biblically, of course, the premier text on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul talks about becoming all things to all people that he might win some, right? And we see a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 17. I mean, I I just love Paul because whenever he walks into town, he's always got two questions when he comes to plant a church. One, show me the synagogue. I want to I want to share Christ with the Jews. And so he walks into a synagogue, he unfolds the scroll and he's working a text and he's pointing it to Jesus. Uh, I think that's that's becoming a Jew, even though he is a Jew. That's an interesting thing that we could riff on for a while. On the other hand, when he's done at the synagogue, he's not done in that city. I mean, if he's in Athens, he says, well, where do the Gentiles hang out? And they point him up to Mars Hill. And there is no unfolding of the scroll. He just uses what they're familiar with and what they're familiar with is an altar to an unknown God. And he's quoting one of their poets and, but it all ends up in the same place, the cross. So I think that is really helpful for me when it comes to contextualization. It's knowing who my audience is. Um, And I, I get this a lot. I think one of the things I was trying to put my finger on is, um, just this, and I've had well-meaning white hosts say this to me, uh, in which, especially in the earlier days of my ministry, when I was figuring out my voice as a preacher, I was constantly told this thing, well, when you're with whites, you need to be more conversational, more conversational, more conversational. And so now I just, I just naturally do that, right? But if I go to a faithful central, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, they they hear things, they receive it best through more of an emotive kind of um kind of a posture. It's not to say um that I can't have any other kind of elements to it. I do, but I think effective communication is who's my audience and what do they need me to be in this moment without compromising who I am. I'm wrestling with the tension. I think African-Americans and minority speakers naturally do that more with white audiences. And Mm -hmm. I just haven't seen our white brothers and sisters come to our direction and do that in our audiences. And I think I make the statement, as long as contextualization is a one-way street, it's oppression. Wow. That's a really fair and important distinction that I think you made and something that we can can really – work on and be more intentional about. You share a story in your book that was one of my favorite parts about Dr. Gordon Kirk, a former Biola professor and a pastor, kind of famous conservative, a white evangelical that just had a big impact on your life. Can you tell kind of who he is and what he did and why that was so significant? Yeah. So um, in the uh, spring of 1998, I'm finishing up uh, at Talbot, by the way, uh, the best graduation ever, Sean, was when your dad preached. I think you preached for 180 seconds. I, I think remember it was. that. That's right. <laughs> and then I think Dr. Cook got up and said, we're going to take that out of your check, something like that. But it was it was the best. Anyways, right after graduation, I uh, 
Um, I left Faithful Central, um, which is a large African-American church in Inglewood, and God had just called me to go over to uh, to Lake Avenue, um, this historic church in Pasadena uh, that was primarily white, pastored by Gordon Kirk. And I, I walked in there convinced that God called me there, but not necessarily wanting to be there, almost like Jonah in a lot of ways. Uh, I was still licking my wounds, and there were some things that uh, I just had to work out and some growth areas. and um, just a matter of weeks being there, Dr. Kirk was on vacation. So this would have been around July of 1998 and had me get up and preach. And um, God was with me and things went well. And when he got back off vacation, he just said, I want to try something called a teaching team. And here I am just, you know, 25 years old. And the point I'm making is he stewarded his privilege well uh, by sharing power with me. And the the pulpit has been called the steering wheel of the church. And for three years, um, I was there for three years and the whole time he's given me opportunity after opportunity and let me preach. I remember we did a series on uh, spiritual gifts and uh, we're planning it out. And he goes, I want you to teach on tongues. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> you don't really know what I believe about the gift. Yeah, I trust you. So um, that may have been a little bit foolish. It went well, but I just say all that to say. Are you are you sure that wasn't a penalty? <laughs> <laughs> could have been, could have been, could have been. Um, but I just say all that to say, um, if if I didn't have a, a Dr. Gordon Kirk type person in my life, um, I'm not so sure I would be doing what I'm doing now. Wow. Um, and for him to share power the way he did with me. Um, Across ethnic lines, even it was just a very moving thing in my own sense of in my own sense of development. Yeah, um, Brian, you've, you're, I loved particularly your last chapter in the book, a hopeful eulogy. Um, what what are what are some things that are that are happening that that make you hopeful uh, going forward? <clears throat> yeah, so I would say the major thing, Scott. It's a great question. When I when we first started out, uh, we planted Fellowship Memphis in 2003, and you know I'm I'm looking for resources and I'm trying to find mentors uh, to help us think through multi ethnic church. And there wasn't a whole lot of places to go. There's like a handful of things, uh, but now with the amount of literature that's out there, and you talk to the average church planter. The average church planter has multi-ethnic on their radar. Um, they may not know how to get there, but it's on their radar. And that is um, that is deeply encouraging to me. We do these things called the Kainos Cohort, um, which is 12 to 15 leaders, uh, church planters, pastors um, from all over the world. And they fly into the Bay Area and uh, they get three days with me and some other leaders just to learn about multi-ethnic church. And I don't even have to advertise for it anymore. I've got a waiting list. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the deeply, deeply, deeply moving thing. Um, I, I think I, it's a two-edged sword, though. I think the reason why my cohort is packed out is because they're not really getting this kind of stuff right now in the academy. So 
I think we've, we've got some growth to do in the academy in helping to get people while they're 19, 20, 21 years old exposed to this. Um, but we are making deep strides. And where we are now is miles away than where we were in 03. That's, that's very encouraging. Uh, Brian, if, if uh, you know, we've got pastors or church elders who are listening to this and they want to get a, get connected with uh, the, 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 uh, the sort of the church consulting thing that you're doing through Kynos, uh, how would they do that? I think the best way is um, if they went to our website, which is alcf.net, they went to alcf.net, they can email me through the website and uh, we can get them an application. We do several of them a year. And um, yeah, I think that'd be the easiest way to do it, Scott. So it sounds, it sounds like what you've, what you've envisioned here in, the, in these cohorts is, a, is just a, a really uh, effective boots on the ground way to start affecting some pretty significant change, you know, one, one, one or a handful of churches at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, um, yeah, this phase of my life, um, I get far more joy, um, influencing 12 churches through 12 leaders than I do preaching to 10,000 people. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's the stuff that makes me smile. That's great stuff. Well, Brian, we were so appreciative of you not only coming on with us, but for your book and for your ministry, for your service on the board at Biola. Um, we'd like to see some of these conversations continue, and particularly in the seminary academies, uh, since they're, you know, last last time I checked, we were still uh, training a, g- a good number of, of the next generation of pastors. So awesome. uh, that, that would actually be terrific to uh, continue to talk about that, how we can do this to impact folks at the at, particular at the seminary level. Absolutely. Well, I'm deeply appreciative of you all and the great work you guys are doing for the best school out there, Biola. <laughs> Thank you, friend. Great, great having you with us today. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. Appreciate right. you guys. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Brian Loritz, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.